morning, and welcome to this edition of American View on Radio Free Hillsdale 101.7 FM. I'm Ben Dietrich, along with my co-host, Alex Nestor. And we're coming to you live from our studios at Hillsdale College in Hillsdale, Michigan. With us in the studio today is Dr. Tom West. He is a professor of politics at Hillsdale College. He's also the author of three books, including The Political Theory of the American Founding. Dr. West, thank you for joining us today. Good to be here. So what we want to talk about first in today's show, we've got a big show today planned. We're going to talk about the debate later on. We're going to talk about some videos being released by Project Veritas um, with regards to what's been happening in the inside at CNN. But before we do that, we want to talk about Syria. It's the big uh, thing on the news right now. President Trump has withdrawn the special forces troop, troops in Syria. And what we've seen is Turkey has moved forward, um, taking over largely the space where the United States previously held and this is drawing a lot of criticism. Just yesterday in Congress, there is a condemnation of the president's decision to withdraw American troops. Only 60 uh, congressmen voted with the president on the bill. Um, so the first thing I would like to ask you, Dr. West, today is uh, Lindsey Graham, one of the biggest supporters for the president in past issues, such as during the Kavanaugh hearings, has been criticizing the president of late. He has called this the biggest mistake of his presidency um, what do you think? Uh, is this the biggest mistake of Donald Trump's presidency? Um, and is there any strategy to this? Uh, you know, is there any uh, guiding principles that are guiding the president? What, what, what is he really thinking, would you say, on, in matters of foreign policy here? I think the easiest thing to do here is to start with what did Trump tell us during the campaign that he wanted to do in foreign policy? Very clear. He ran against all the other Republican candidates who, on the topic of foreign policy, particularly in the Middle East. Trump's claim was, we're, uh, we're, we're, everything we've done in the Middle East in recent decades has been counterproductive for us and harmful to the countries that are there. Uh, he argues that the best uh, policy for the United States in the Middle East and in general around the world is only get involved in places that are actually important to American national security. Other places that we don't have any business in, we don't need to be there. And I think Trump's uh, critique is a critique that echoes, however consciously or unconsciously, the views of the American founders. This is one of the most surprising things to me about the whole Trump phenomenon is that a man who probably has very little historical knowledge of the American political tradition is bringing up, articulating, and promoting the views of a whole, that uh, used to be the, the view that everybody agreed with in America up till, let's say, more or less 1898, until the time we started on our current course of trying to run the entire world. So, you know, many out there, especially Democrats on the, the left, but also even some conservatives have suggested that the president has no strategy um, other than, you know, he kind of acts spontaneously. But it seems that you're suggesting, no, there, there is a strategy here and that it's backed up by a lot of the ideas that the founders um, had with regards to foreign policy. Can you help explain to us what that, what that looks like? Um, you know, what were the founders concerned with with regards to foreign policy and how does that relate to what President Trump is trying to do today? Well, this is one of those areas where you, know, you can go back and quote the founding documents, the Declaration of Independence, the Constitution, and, uh, and yet the people who quote those documents very often don't have any idea what their implications are for foreign, foreign policy. 
So, for example, the Declaration of Independence says uh, everybody's created equal, we all have the same individual rights, and it's government's job to secure these rights. Now, in foreign policy, that means, first and foremost, national defense. You secure the rights of the people to life, liberty, and property by making sure other nations can't take them away, by deterring uh, offense from abroad, and, if need be, by killing it off by using a war. That's the basic purpose of foreign policy. But there's a second element to the founders' view that everyone forgets today, and that's stated in the the first paragraph of the Declaration of Independence, which says every nation has the right to a separate and equal station among the, the nations of the earth. A right to a separate and equal station. That was the right we claimed when we declared independence. Separate and equal station means other nations don't have the right to go intervening in their affairs and telling them how to organize their country, how, what, how they should act towards their own citizens, what they should do with respect to this or that minority. But today, we've forgotten that. We've rejected that. We've t- we, for the last 140, 30 years or so, whatever it is, uh, starting really about 1900, so it's 120 years, we have the view that we know best what's good for the world, what's good for other countries and their internal governance. And that's been the guiding philosophy, the guiding orientation ever since. So you have a stark confrontation between the views of the founders, which prevailed in America more or less up till the end of the 19th century, and the views of, of contemporary progressivism and liberalism, which is bought into by both political parties uh, almost unanimously. Now, would you, would you call that isolationism? Or is it, is it something of a, of a different breed? I mean, when President Trump describes his foreign policy, when you read the speeches he made before his presidency and the ones he's made at the United Nations, um, he still suggests that America is leading in some sense, um, that there is a, a position for America to take on the world stage that doesn't necessarily mean engaging in offensive wars or wars that are well beyond the borders of the United States without much, you know, um, end game, so to speak, not much uh, described as to how long the U.S. will fight those wars. Well, there's a famous uh, speech by John Quincy Adams that's on American exceptionalism. And uh, that's a term that is used today to mean we get to dominate other countries and tell them how to act. Uh, what Adams meant by that was we are an exceptional nation in the sense that we have figured out how to create a political order through our constitution that protects the rights of individuals, that provides what they used to call civil and religious liberty for all citizens. And we are leaders of the world, not in the sense of military, not in the sense of conquest, but rather as an example to the world, showing the world that we are a city on the hill that is is an exemplar of liberty for all nations. But to go back to your isolationism point, uh, the original view of foreign policy that I've articulated uh, was not isolationist because to protect American lives, that also meant protect American shipping. One of the first wars we got into was, uh, was the war against the pirates, uh, the Muslim pirates in the Mediterranean Sea that were kidnapping our soldiers and attacking them. And it's, you know, that's what we went to war over. That was a war far away from home. There's no way you're going to call Thomas Jefferson an isolationist when you see what that war was about. And, and by the way, that kind of thing has continued ever since. You know, and it wasn't very long ago that pirates off the coast of Somalia 
were attacking American shipping, and we had to do something. This is not, these are problems that are always with us. So, no, isolationism can't work in the sense of simply staying within your own borders and ignoring the rest of the world, not if you're a commercial nation, not if you're a nation that wants to have international trade and commerce. So you mentioned, uh, Dr. West, that it's necessary at times, um, you know, to go to war to keep our position as, a, you know, a, a nation of uh, separate and equal station. So is that why we've been so heavily involved in the Middle East or are there... Uh, other more, you know, com- reasons that have compounded on top of that for us remaining in the Middle East for so long. This is a, t- a topic that's hard to analyze in our c- current scene because there are two separate lines of arguments that are deployed depending on who's talking and what the circumstance. One is we need to be over there and, and stopping them over there before they come over here and harm us. This is an argument that has especially been used ever since the 9-11 attack. The idea was uh, the 9-11 attack uh, could have been stopped if we had gone into the Middle East more forcefully and gone after Muslim terrorists over there before they could organize and come here. So there's a national defense argument. But there's also an argument about we need to make the world a better place, and it's our duty to do so. Uh, If you look at George Bush's second inaugural address, if you look at these statements that Obama made while he was president, if you look at Clinton, all these presidents, I don't care whether they're Republican, Democratic, they all have the same exact view of foreign policy, which is that the United States does need to concern itself with national defense, but only if at the same time it can be remaking the world in our image. So... can we, is there room in the Constitution for this global policing? The Constitution. <laughs> or restructure or forming of. Yeah, well, the Constitution would, you know, the Constitution says uh, that, that the purpose of, the preamble of the Constitution speaks of, of uh, national defense, of defending our country as the purpose, one of the purposes of the U.S. Constitution. And, but. And so the answer is, there might be occasions, yes, when the United States would need to go abroad, be involved in the affairs of other nations, if the threat from abroad is successfully to be countered that way. But the founders would say, keep it simple, keep the analysis in your mind focused on what the real question is. Namely, how does it affect the security of American citizens and American rights here at home or American commerce abroad? We can't do that now. We keep confusing the two ends. So we go into Iraq. Did we go in there looking for weapons of mass destruction? Or did we go in there to make Iraq into a democracy? We said both at the time. And then we tried to do both. And of course, it turned out the weapons of mass destruction argument was false. We went in there under a false premise, which means that on the, in terms of the argument made by the Bush administration, it didn't do us any good. We're in the same situation in Syria. We're being told we need to be in Syria. Why do we need to be in Syria? We're told we need to be in Syria to protect the Kurds. But are the Kurds in any way important for our national defense? That's the question Trump is raising. One of the most interesting things I've, I've found as we've watched this unfold is it seems not a lot of people are really aware of who the Kurds are, what their, what their history is. You know, nobody really seems to be talking about that aspect of it. You know, we see people uh, from the Senate and from the Congress talk, say, oh, we, we, you know, there are allies. We have this 
you know, innate duty to defend them. Um, and, and it's almost as if they, they treat them as if they are American citizens. Um, you know, President Trump, of course, contrasts that. And it's interesting that you mentioned even President Obama in, in opposition to that with, well, you put him alongside President Bush. Um, President Bush is famous for starting the Iraq war, the second one. And uh, then, of course, President Obama um, is often criticized for the rise of ISIS. You would still align him into that camp, per se, of, of people that kind of subscribe to a globalist view of foreign policy? There, the reason why, look, of course, there are all kinds of differences between individual presidents with respect to details of this broad policy I'm talking about. Uh, and but what, what you can count on is they will all agree that the United States needs to be forcefully involved all over the world in every region, including, of course, the Middle East. So it's true. Obama did say he was going to end the Iraq war. But he didn't end the Iraq war. We still have troops there. We still have bases there. We have bases all around there. We have bases in Kuwait, Saudi Arabia. Uh, we now, And the same Obama, who I do believe he, like Trump, actually was less interventionist than his predecessor, George W. Bush. But Obama got talked into an attack on Libya and created mm. a whole new war. It seems it happens with every, every president they come along, you know. They talk about the wary, you know, being wary of, of fighting these wars. And we've seen this with a lot of Democrats, too. Which it was kind of shocking on the debate stage on Tuesday. Other than Tulsi Gabbard, basically everybody on that stage um, took the position that Trump was wrong to, to um, not intervene more in Syria with what was happening. Um, so the, the president, uh, you know, in his speeches during his campaign, from, from my understanding and some of the things that, that I've looked at with you and in, in, the, in the class we took, was that he actually describes a lot of his foreign policy and puts it out there? Um, you know, to what to what extent is is uh, are, are these simply just campaign promises that he made, and people are forgetting that? I mean, when he says "drain the swamp," is this what he was talking about? Well, in this case, he's the, he's the one who said we're overextended all over the world, and especially in the Middle East, and he did imply. He'd like to bring the troops home. Now, on the other hand, Trump said ISIS is a big problem and we need to defeat them. So the campaign did not give a, sim a single message. Trump was in some ways at odds with himself. Do we want to stay and defeat ISIS or do we want, do we want to go and say we don't care about ISIS? Now, Trump continues to say, yes, it's important to have defeated ISIS. We've done that. We don't need to be there as much anymore. And that's, argu that's an arguable position. That's a defensible position, although it's con contested by others. But the real question, as Trump keeps raising, is why do we need to be in Syria right now when Turkey wants to go in to control their border region? They're worried about uh, Kurd Kurdish uh, terrorism. People seem to forget the Kurds are a major minority, a, a big minority in Turkey, and they have created all kinds of terrorist incidents within Turkey itself. Turkey has a national interest in defending its border against potential terrorism, which they were arguing was being organized across the border in Syria. Meanwhile, the government of Syria, which under the Obama administration, we tried to overthrow. The Trump administration early on said we should overthrow that government. Now, the, now Trump's saying, why don't we let Syria take care of its own affairs? This is all within their borders. Why do we have to concern ourselves with something that Turkey and Syria 
have an immediate national interest in, namely the border region of, of Syria. And by the way, the Kurds lived under the regime of Syria so, earlier yeah, and, and you, did okay. And I think it definitely, when you, when you put it like that, I think a lot of people think about a lot of those arguments people like President Bush made where they say, well, you know, Assad is a, you know, an, an oligarch or he's a dictator and that, you know, we shouldn't allow dictators to oppressively rule their people. Therefore, we need to stand up and intervene. Now, you mentioned Thomas Jefferson, for instance, um, and you mentioned the founders and their views on foreign policy. The question I want to ask you that I think kind of helps us better understand what's happening now is why were the founders so concerned on um, what historical things that happened that, that made them so concerned about um, America overreaching abroad, America, you know, engaging in too big of alliances, you know, caring more about helping out their allies than actually helping their own people. What, what were the historical concerns there? Well, first of all, just to comment on your remark on Assad and Syria, I just have to say, that's a, the fact that everybody keeps saying in the end, it's all about we have to worry about this evil, nasty little dictator in Syria. That's what I'm saying is the view that the founding fathers would have totally rejected. They would have said, it is not our business who's running Syria. Syria is no threat to the United States in any way. It's, it's, a, uh, it, it's a country that is badly governed. It's always been badly governed. It's always probably going to be badly governed as far as we can see into the future. We shouldn't be bothering with that. But we all have the view now. The United States is the world's policeman, and it's not just about national defense. It's also about fixing things. Now, to go back to your question about why the founders believed in a foreign policy that's focused on national defense, I'll tell you why. It's because they were part of the British Empire. The British Empire was a predatory worldwide empire in the 18th century. They were dominating every continent. They had colonies in Africa, Asia, everywhere, Latin America, Central America. And they were so proud of that. The British flag all over the map of the world. And they, and they had America. They had Canada. You know, they, they were, wanted to run the world. And the United States, uh, there's a comment Hamilton made in Federalist 11. He said, we need to teach that European brother of ours moderation. They think they have the right to run the entire world in every continent. That's, that's a threat to our liberty, and it's also a violation of the rights of people all over the world who have the right to be left alone and not governed and dominated by, Europe, by European powers. Mm -hmm. And so, some would argue it even you know, eventually led to their, their ruin as a, as a global power um, by overextending. The British, agree? yeah, yeah. Of course, I would say the thing that led to British ruin as a global power were two were World War One and World War Two. That's a topic maybe for another occasion. So, why? I guess uh, one question I've had uh, for a while now is is why why now? Um, is it just because John Bolton has left the White House, or is it that with a mixture of things that are going on in the Middle East, like um, Turkey trying to retake this border? What? What is, why is it happening now? That's great. That's a good question. Now, this gets me a chance to talk about the blob. One of Obama's top advisors said that in national security policy, presidents aren't allowed to act on their own. Everything is run by the blob, meaning there's a whole foreign policy establishment. State Department, 
defense, congressional staffers, people in Congress, media, education. It doesn't matter. Think tanks. You call it the swamp, too. <laughs> the swamp, the blob. And you'll notice this isn't the first time. Trump's previously has announced we're getting out of Syria. And what happened? It was, an, it was a firestorm of protest from the blob, from his own people. Trump can't find anybody who will actually support his conception no, of foreign ex- policy. Except for Rand Paul. <laughs> and he's not available. Yeah. But, and he wouldn't be confirmable. The thing is, the Senate is absolutely dedicated to the blob orientation towards foreign policy. The Senate confirms all federal appointments. Trump can't get anybody. We talked about this with Michael Anton. He's a a lecturer now at the D.C. campus in Hillsdale, and uh, he mentioned this as well. We asked him the same thing about John Bolton and how their relationship was, and he basically said, yeah, it's very hard to find people who are qualified to be national security advisors that that share President Trump's views on foreign policy. There's a great... There's a book I'm using in my course uh, by... um, by a Harvard professor, Stephen Walt, and it's called The Hell of Good Intentions. kind of lays out the argument I'm talking about here. But one of the points of his book, he's got a couple of chapters on it, is why presidents aren't able to change foreign policy, even if they want to. Yeah. All good points. Thank you so much, Dr. Tom West, for joining us today. We really appreciate you taking the time to, to be in the studio with us. Thanks a lot, guys. I appreciate it. Good to be here. You've been here listening to American View, where Hillsdale meets the nation. When we come back, we're going to talk about Project Veritas, the secret videos they've been releasing from CNN and the Democratic National Debate. We'll be back just shortly on American View, Radio Free Hillsdale. Welcome back to American View on Radio Free Hillsdale 101.7 FM. I'm Ben Dietrich. And I'm Alex Nestor. We're coming to you live from our studios at Hillsdale College in Hillsdale, Michigan. Um, big show today. We just got done with an interview with Dr. Tom West. He's a professor of politics at Hillsdale College. We talked about Syria and how Trump's ideas on foreign policy have surprising similarities with the Founding Fathers. If you're joining us on the radio now, log on to American View, WRFH on Facebook, or check us out on Spotify, American View, Radio Free Hillsdale as well. Um, so, you know, as we're moving forward here, I just want to add one more thing before we move on from that segment. Um, look, I know when you talk about foreign policy from the position that America should be doing less uh, abroad, um, at least in terms of where its troops are, less offensive action, I I understand if, if that makes you feel um, uncomfortable you know, we have been raised, as we talked about in this previous conversation, we have been raised to believe that America should be a leader, a shining um, beacon on a hill, as they say, a shining light on the hill, a shining city on the hill. I believe it's that. That's the famous quote. Um, the and Bible verse. The Bible verse that it comes from. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. Yeah, so, you know, people, we've been taught to believe that, um, to believe in something called American exceptionalism. And I, and I do full heart, wholeheartedly believe in American exceptionalism and the, the greatness that America has brought across the world. And, you know, wars like World War II um, and the, the, the role we played there were important. Um, and uh, I would never want to change that. But I do think it's worth asking these questions. It's due, it's, it is also worth engaging these ideas because, you know, 
offensive war in general is not always a good thing. There's a lot to be said about history and what happens to nations that simply um, spread themselves too thin abroad. When you forget the interests of your own people first, you know, President Trump's argument that he has made to the United Nations um, just a couple weeks ago was essentially, you know, if you want to actually help these people, if you want to actually bring peace to the world, then the courageous thing to do is to, to you know, respect the sovereignty of other nations and um, lead with your own nation's principles first. That's the best way in which you can cooperate and help these, these other countries. Um, so just, you know, it's worth to always consider these things. If you think you are dead set on your views in foreign policy, it's never a bad idea to, to consider what the other side has to say. Mm-hmm. Well, I, you know, personally think about how how long we've been in the Middle East and Afghanistan and, and other um, countries there. And it is, you know, you kind of think to yourself, like, do we really need to be there for this long? Why are we still there? Why are, um, you know, our men and women dying there? Um, and I think at first it definitely had, you know, a very good purpose and it still does today. Uh, we are, you know, trying to fight terrorism. But what exactly does terrorism look like and how exactly do you uh, fight that? I think those are two questions that we might have had, um, maybe not a wrong answer to, but we can't, I mean, terrorists are, are still there. ISIS, um, you know. Yeah, you know, and, and I would agree with that, that the terrorists, are, are part of the things we're fighting. But, you know, at the same time, I mean, I would still question whether or not it was, it was right to go there in the first place. I'm, I'm not going to make any decisions there, but I think there's a conversation worth to be having. And also with the Syria thing, I mean, are we really there to fight ISIS anymore? Or are we there to make sure that Russia and Turkey don't take our place? Is that a good, good enough reason to be there? I mean, are we micromanaging a, an issue? I mean, I don't consider, I think West had a point, is, is Syria really a threat to the United States' interests? Probably not. No, I do think the ISIS question, I think it's still a valid question in regards to us being in Syria. I mean, you've seen after us pulling out of Syria already that a lot of ISIS prisoners that were there have escaped. Um, and in the same thing is, you know, happened when uh, uh, Obama pulled out of um, the Middle East and during during his presidency, uh, kind of giving giving rise to ISIS. Many would argue um uh, you know, kind of creating a vacuum. So are we going to create another power vacuum there by pulling out all the way? Or are one of these countries going to step in and take power and hopefully, you know, not let um, terrorist organizations like ISIS? Uh, well, yeah, I, I, I do think this is different than what happened with, with Obama's time. I mean, also President Trump, there weren't that many soldiers there to start with. President mm-hmm. Trump was told by the Turkish president, according to the White House, at least in the Department of Defense, that that Syria was, or Turkey was going to advance whether or not the American troops moved or not. Um, and so mm-hmm. the question was, do you engage in a war with Turkey? Is that really worth it? And I think the assessment President Trump made was, this is not our land. You know, mm-hmm. we it's not worth fighting, fighting Turkey over this. Mm-hmm. Um, Turkey has had a, a lot of different um, problems with the United States and uh, decisions they've made, specifically with their decision to ally with the Kurds because of longstanding histories between the Kurds and Syria. Uh, in Turkey, excuse me. So we'll we'll come back to that. There's a, a pretty interesting letter as well, mm-hmm. you know, of course, uh, from the president. Um, a lot of people have been critical about the way the president talks to, to President Erdogan, saying it sounds almost childish. He says, let's work out a good deal. You know, later he says, uh, history will look upon you favorable if, favorably if you get this done the right and humane way. It will look upon you forever as the devil if good things don't happen. Don't be a tough guy. 
don't be a fool, exclamation point. Yeah, my favorite line, I think, is when he says, um, and I don't want to be responsible for destroying the Turkish economy, and I will. It's uh, <laughs> uh, kind of makes me think of, you know, my mother threatening me for, you know, not doing my homework or something. I'll, I'll take away your toys and, you know, I will do it. So his, uh, yeah, I think he gets a lot of uh, flack for his rhetoric there. Um, but what have yeah. you, it's an interesting little letter. It's a fun read. Yeah, it's, <laughs> it's very interesting, you know. Um, and it's one of the reasons I think you, you can't really call, you cannot call President Trump an isolationist because I, I, I don't think he's an isolationist. I think it's just one thing to suggest that, you know, you don't, if you consider this war an offensive war, I mean, you're considerably outside the United States. You want America to have the strongest military it can so that nobody ever messes with us and that we are forced to be working with on on the world stage um, using the other channels, but um, all very interesting. We'll come back to this issue on another episode. Right now, we need to move over to the Democratic debate. Um, It was on Tuesday. I'll be honest. I was not impressed with the whole lot of it. I watched a little bit of it. A bit of it. It was pretty boring. Um, you know, there there was an interesting article about Ellen DeGeneres out there. Basically, the last question they spent twenty minutes of this three hour debate asking all the candidates um, to talk about experiences they've had um, or friends they've made where that have been you know kind of challenged by society or something that you know wouldn't be necessarily normal. Anderson Cooper asked him to make this question because of the fact that Ellen Janus went to a football game with President George W. Bush and has defended that decision. After the debate, they all tweet out about it. A lot of them did. Julian Castro says, um, you know, uh, three hours and no questions tonight about climate, housing, or immigration. Um, climate change is an existential threat. America is, has a housing crisis. But you know, Ellen. <laughs> Hashtag Democratic debate. We saw the same thing from Kamala Harris. And many others. What are your thoughts on that, Alex? (laughs) So, I mean, the whole controversy that has come about because of Ellen DeGeneres sitting next to George Bush at a football game is just absolutely absurd. I think it's absurd to spend time with it anymore at all. Um, I think, you know, when it happened, when it first came out, Ellen addressed it. And I really did appreciate what she had to say. But it's, come on, you know, why, why are we spending these uh, you know, minutes in a debate talking about this issue, which is really a non-issue. She sat next to George Bush at a football game, and apparently, this is just this is a crime um, to do, to do that. So we just need to move past this. It's yeah. it's old. It's getting old to to listen to people complain about it. Now, also in the debate, you saw a lot of uh, moderates, such as Amy Klobuchar and Pete Buttigieg, Mayor Pete Buttigieg. They um, kind of went after some of the more hard left positions. One of those was Elizabeth Warren's wealth (laughs) tax. What happened there? Well, Elizabeth Warren just thinks that if you just squeeze the 1%, they will provide enough money to uh, supply the entire country with health care and, um, you know, other other things. But uh, Warren fails to ever really discuss taxes on the middle class. She, she dodges the question left and right. And I honestly don't know if I've heard a, an answer about whether or not she plans on uh, taxing the middle class. She always, well, she touts this big old plan she has and can't answer a question about it. So that's a little concerning. Yeah. So it seems it's not just the 1% she's talking about taxing. Cause, oh, no. Um, you know, in this, uh, in this, these, these clips, basically, it, it, you know, Bernie Sanders, of course, has been willing to say 
yeah, your taxes are going to go mm-hmm. up to the middle class. If we listen to Elizabeth Warren, you get a different picture. I want to play it and kind of explain what she's actually saying here. Senator Warren, let me let me take that to you, particularly on what Senator Biden was saying there uh, about health care. He's actually praised Bernie Sanders for being candid about his health care plan. The senator says that Senator Sanders has been candid about the fact that middle class taxes are going to go up and most of private insurance is going to be eliminated. Will you make that same admission? So let's be clear about health care and let's actually start where Vice President did. We all owe a huge debt to President Obama, who fundamentally transformed health care in America and committed this country to health care for every human being. And now the question is, how best can we improve on it? And I believe the best way we can do that is we make sure that everybody gets covered by health care at the lowest possible cost. All right, you know, we can listen cost. to her whole answer. It gets pretty long there. The point is, when she gets asked the question, she does not take Doesn't the time answer. to answer it. Pete Buttigieg immediately says, you know, you were just asked a yes or no question, and we didn't get a yes or no answer. How about that? So, you know, follow that. This is the point that both her and Bernie Sanders are actually making. And, you know, she tries to dodge around it, just kind of like Obama refused to answer whether or not your insurance rates would go up or if you get to keep your doctors with his health care. Because they don't want to tell you the news you don't want to hear. They just want to tell you the good parts about their, their lovely bills. Here's the thing. The argument they're making and what you have to assess, and I think conservatives have even been maybe a bit too critical about this, is yes, your taxes as a middle class American will go up. The argument there is that the health care, because you will be on single-payer health care provided by the government, your rates will go down tremendously or be basically zero. So you lose the amount of a couple hundred dollars a month. You know, if you're a family of four and you're paying $800 a month in health care um, premiums, you would no longer be paying that. But you would see an increase in your taxes. Their argument is for the middle class that that increase in taxes will be smaller than the uh, – amount that you were paying in healthcare premiums. I think you have to at least put their argument out there. Bernie Sanders has been clear enough about that, um, whereas Elizabeth Warren is just kind of all over the place there. She doesn't want to tell you. She doesn't want to be honest. I'll give Bernie that. You know, at least he's going to tell you. Um, but, he, you know, he's also is honest about how his love for bread lines. So yeah. you got to take that with a grain of salt. He, unlike, unlike uh, Warren, Bernie Sanders is very comfortable with saying that he is... Uh, very anti-capitalist, a socialist. And, and Warren still, I believe the quote was, she still has capitalism in her bones, with I, which I what disagree with. I don't about? think that is true at all. I you know, you would know. like to see an x-ray to see if that's actually there uh, because it's, it's not. Um, but yeah, Warren, I think she's still trying to cling to this facade of, yes, we still want a capitalist free market America, except... Uh, not not with with healthcare or you know most things. So right, yeah. Well, you know, and we'll continue to follow everything she has to say and the wealth tax and all the crazy policies on the the left that you're seeing um, that are you know being discussed. Um, let's turn over to impeachment, and I want to talk about something that's been happening right now. So Gallup came out with some polls lately. They are showing that the you know just yesterday the Gallup poll was showing that the amount of Americans that think President Trump should be really uh, impeached. Um, and uh, removed from office, I think is at 52%. Um, it's, it's at the highest rate that it's been. It's gone up considerably. Um, you've seen an increase in Democrats, an increase in independents that believe the president should be impeached and removed. We have seen a decrease, actually, in the amount of Republicans that think he should be impeached or removed. 
what goes into that story? That's the question. Um, you know, what, what is causing this, this opinion to be happening? Is this, is it the president Trump and his actions? Um, you know, of course we've seen what was been happening about Syria. He's received a lot of attacks based on that. Um, I think a lot of it also has to do with the way the media uh, portrays the situation, the way the media is choosing to sell this argument. So I would like to share with you some leaks that have come out of Project Veritas, a group that does this. They, um, let whistleblowers in some sense come to them and tell them about what's happening at some of these kind of more liberal companies. Companies. I want you guys to hear right now. We're going to play some clips. The first clip we're going to play um, is from a Project Veritas, a guy who is basically a contract cameraman. He's a Democrat. He wears a mic to CNN, and he's going to show us some clips um, from President of CNN, Jeff Zucker, talking to his staff. Um, so we're going to go ahead and play the first one here. Um, clip number three. And then we're going to uh, go from there and we'll talk about it, talk about what all this means. Fine, but it's, it's very obvious, it's an unwritten rule that if you are center, center right, or heaven forbid, full right Republican Trump supporter, then you are not welcome at CNN. I also think we should be doing a So that is president of CNN, what? right? Now. That right now, what you can hear, this is president of CNN, Jeff Zucker, talking. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I actually came to CNN, a, um, a registered Democrat. I campaigned and voted for Bernie in the primaries of the 16th election, but I still consider myself a Democrat. Okay, so that's uh, Kerry Porch right there, okay? And he, like I said, is a contractor who came to CNN to work there. Uh, registered Democrat, Bernie Sanders supporter. He records some of these phone calls. One of them was a 9 a.m. rundown call. They talked to the, all the people at the network about what's happening at CNN. That was Jeff Secker, the president of CNN, talking about how he wants them to focus on impeachment and focus on the fact that Kamala Harris is trying to get Trump banned on Twitter. Now I want to play you some more clips from uh, some of these calls he recorded. Decided to secretly record the 9 a.m. rundown call meetings, and it's basically run by Jeff Zucker, the president of CNN. We're moving towards uh, 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 impeachment. I mean, don't like, you know, we shouldn't pretend, oh, this is going one way. And, and so all these moves uh, are moves towards uh, impeachment. When I came to work, work at CNN, I mean, it was my dream job. And that dream actually just turned into a nightmare. So I, I I think what's going on in America now is really fundamentally uh, the result of years uh, of uh, fake news, conspiracy, uh, nonsense from fake out from Fox News. He was calling Fox News fake news and a propaganda machine. And with what I saw, I'm like, that's pretty much what CNN was. <laughs> like, it's just pumping out propaganda. Uh, All right. the, the, the fake conspiracy nonsense that uh, Fox has spread for years uh, is now deeply embedded in American society, uh, and frankly, that is uh, destructive to America, and I do not think we should be uh, scared to, to say so. So that was Jeff Zucker, president of CNN, being basically recorded in a phone call by um, this contractor uh, for CNN. 
I want to help you guys piece all this together. I played all the clips in a row before I wanted to talk about them. So you got Jeff Zucker basically saying, we need to focus on Kamala Harris banning Trump's Twitter. And in this other clip we played, he kind of explains his, his reasoning for these types of decisions, why we have to attack Lindsey Graham, why in another clip we don't get to hear in this segment, um, he actually you know, is in the earpiece of these interviews and tells you know, his staff, let's extend this interview with Kellyanne Conway from seven minutes to 25 minutes. Don't go to commercial. We have to nail her. We have to get her. Keep on asking her questions. She will crack eventually. You know, uh, kind of funny that they find... Kellyanne Conway so hard to crack. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, so this happens, and this is the point here I'm trying to make, guys. This is all connected, okay? This is the same connection to what the reason Kamala Harris right now wants Trump to be banned from Twitter, okay? You look at what Jeff Zucker has to say about Fox News, fake news that is causing the destructiveness of America. What do they mean about that? Basically, what they mean is that because you're not watching their enlightened views on CNN, because you're not subscribing to the media channels that the left would prefer you to listen to, that they would prefer to you to watch. Because you dare watch Fox News, you know, the, the channel for deplorables. Because you dare read Donald Trump's Twitter and get your news from online media outlets that haven't been censored probably and, you know, properly filtered to, re- to reflect the real news, which... Uh, as we learn from this, this CNN contractor, in his opinion, as a Democrat, is just not nearly the truth at all. You know, because if you dare go outside those lines, and they, they, you know, that is wrong, and that is the reason we must censor not only the president's tweets, his primary communication with the American people. That needs to be shut off. Not only that, but you know, also Fox News. Um, all of that is destructive and should be twisted for the good of of the country. It, it's fascinating. And here in these clips, you just see it so blatantly obvious. This is what the president of CNN believes. This is the agenda he has. And the worst part is that they describe this as news. They call CNN the most trusted news uh, channel. And, and, and what a joke. You know, at least Fox, I, you know, the fair and balanced um, slogan is no longer their slogan, in case you guys didn't know. It's actually... Real, honest news, real, honest opinion. And I, I kind of like that, at least, because at least there you have the distinguishment between what is news and opinion. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Ben, I was actually in D.C. last week, and I, you know, uh, before I met with a friend of mine, I um, went and grabbed breakfast in the hotel, and on the, C- on the TV was CNN, and they were playing this uh, uh, clip on, um, you know, Fox News being, you know, propagators of this counter narrative as if CNN and what they say and what they believe is the narrative, the end all be all narrative of what we have to think, say, do um, politically what we have to believe. And it was it was very frightening, honestly. It's it's so true. You know, that's what they think. And the reason they think it is because they don't like the fact that that President Donald Trump is elected. It all goes back to this, you know. The American people made a poor mistake, and it wasn't our fault. We were falsely educated. It was the Russians colluding (laughs) online on Facebook. It's Donald Trump with his Twitter telling us lies and Fox News telling us lies. All this false information from anybody that, you know, could possibly support the president. That's what we see on the other side, folks. Uh, You know, so hold your heads on. Keep them screwed on tight. Um, (laughs) Keep on evaluating the sources for yourself. Keep on listening to American View on Radio Free Hillsdale 101.7 FM, where Hillsdale meets the nation. I'm Ben Dietrich. And I'm Alex Nestor. Check us out on Facebook, American View WFH. We'll be back next week with more.